just the other day, I was reading online, and I, I came across an article, I remembered a story, actually, from December of 2016. Now, I know some of you aren't as familiar with American football, but American football is a huge deal here in the United States of America, especially when it comes to the Super Bowl. And there are certain cities that have pretty rabid fans. Uh, they're really known for their zeal for their specific sports team, and one of them spe- specifically is the Cowboys. Well, this one cowboy, Jason Garnett was his name, wanted to show his devotion and dedication in December of 2016 because the, the, the Cowboys made the playoffs. So he got a tat, he got a tattoo on his arm that said Super Bowl, champion, Super 50, Super Bowl 51 champions, right? And it made the news. Everybody that's running all, all these articles and running about this guy getting a tattoo is he's declaring that his team is going to be the champion and showing off his tattoo. But if you kept up with sports at all, you know that they got beaten by the Packers, and they were out of the playoffs. So this guy, if he would have done it and it happened, he would have been like a genius or a prophet. But as it is, he looks like a big, giant idiot. Because he got this big tattoo that says Super Bowl, and they lost the Super Bowl. Because he was making this huge boast, this declaration, this is what's going to happen. This is the declaration that I want to say, I am so confident that this is what's going to occur, and we know that something else happened, and now he looks like an idiot. Now he's just going to try to put in another one after it and keep doing it as much as he can uh, to show up his mistake. But the reality is, is that as Jason Garnett is to football, many of us are to life. We like to make boasts about what we're going to do, what we're going to accomplish, that we're masters of our own destiny, that we're, we're, we're captains of our soul, that we're the ones that are going to carpe diem, seize the day. That's us, right? And we have this illusion that we're in complete control of our lives, that we're going to make these great boasts of what we're going to do and the plans that we have and the things that we're going to accomplish. And we get all pumped up and hyped up, and people are like, yeah, yeah, slapping high fives. And, and then we know, though, that life has a tendency to not go the way that we expected it to go. Health reports. Financial issues. Personal relationships. Our own personal struggles and sins begin to rear themselves. And we have to understand how to deal with them. You know, the Bible talks a lot about, or actually, the Bible talks about the entirety of our lives. And one of the things it talks about is planning. And instead of us being carpe diem, seize the day, we need to use another Latin term called dio valente. Dio valente is probably a term that you're not familiar with. Everybody's familiar with carpe diem. You can just hear Robin Williams going, carpe, carpe diem, from the movie. There's, no one hears Dio Valente, which means, as the Lord wills. See, many of us want to seize the day, but instead God's saying, no, 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 rely on me. Don't try to make plans without me involved, but understand that I am the one that's in charge, that you're not the captain of your faith. You're not the captain of your own soul. You're not the, the master of your destiny. Instead, you have to understand and seek what God's will is for your life. So today, we're going to see how we can abandon our arrogance, because really what it is is our arrogance that we think we can do, we can accomplish. But we want to also step forward confidently, not with a belief in ourselves, but a belief in who God is and what he wants to do in us and through us. So today, I want us to look at this passage in James as a corrective lens to help sharpen our perspective to understand how we might plan, how we might live in such a way to give his name glory, and then how we might plan accordingly for the glory of his name. 
So no matter what situation you're facing, no matter what career direction, no matter family issue, let's, let's open our hearts to see what God has for us, that he might be our true north, that gives us a true map before us and how we might live for the glory, honor, and praise of his name. So let's take a moment to pray, asking his spirit to open our hearts that we might be receptive to receive this truth. So let's take a moment to pray, please. Holy Father, I am reminded right now that you are God and I am not. Lord, that you are in control of the universe and know what, no matter what boast or plans that we make, that it's the, the will of the Lord that will prevail. Lord, how often do we have this illusion that we are in control of our lives? Today, we want to come to you, asking you to show us how we are to live, how we might cede control to you, but how we might make plans accordingly to the glory of your name. Lord, we want your will for our lives. We want your direction. Lord, help us to see what it means to follow you and to plan. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump right in to our text. Let's begin in verse 13, if you'll follow along with me. Uh, Remember, James is writing to these scattered Christians over the known world who had suffered persecution. Uh, Now they had gone to different spots, and now he writes to them. He's he's writing this corrective, and that's what he's been doing uh, throughout the first four chapters of James. He says, Come now, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He's addressing these dispersed and displaced Christians who were thinking they were going to go out and make a great deal of money. And he says this, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town. Now, many people have read this text and they believe that James is condemning making plans, but that's not what James is saying here. Matter of fact, the Bible actually says that making plans is actually a very good thing. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5, we read this. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty only comes, to, comes only to poverty. So again, planning's not a bad thing. Matter of fact, Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of Luke when he's talking about planning. He says, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? He's making plans. Can I do this or not? Whether he has enough to complete it. So making plans is not a bad thing. Now, again, some have seen this as like, hey, I, I shouldn't make any plans. It's just whatever I wake up in the day, whatever God wills, I do. That's not what this is talking about. We are to make plans. What James is addressing is the arrogant tendency to think that we are in control of our lives and make plans apart from God. See, that's the first point that we have to understand. We have an arrogant tendency to think we are in control of our lives. We have to rethink how we plan, not, not making no plans, but instead we have to rethink how we go about our lives because we do have this arrogant tendency to think that we are in control, which is why James wrote, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year here and trade and make a profit. He's saying, hey, we're going to make this kind of money, let's do this. And they're not asking God, they're not invoking him. Instead, they're saying that they're going to do it. They're the masters of their own fate. We get this in verse 16, where it says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
Now, this word for boasting is fascinating. You have to remember that the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which means common Greek. It wasn't classical Greek. It was written for the every man and woman because that was the lingua, what they call the lingua franca of the ancient world. Because of Alexander the Great, Greek spread all around, so everyone spoke it. And he's writing in this very common language, and he uses this very fascinating word called aladzonia. And Aladzonia is originally the characteristic of the wandering quack. This guy that would wander around, who would offer cures, which were really no cures, and boasted of things that he was not able to do. And the future is not within the hands of men, and no man can arrogantly claim that he has the power to decide it. James ends with a threat. He says, if a man knows that a thing is wrong and still continues to do it, that to him is sin. And what he is in effect saying is, you've been warned The truth has been placed before your eyes. Continue now in the self-confident habit of seeking to dispose of one's own life is sin for the man who has been reminded that the future is not in his hands but in God's. See, he is addressing this mindset because what had happened is that they really thought they were in control because they said, we're going to go and do this. And and the tendency that we all have is not just that we think we're in control. We want to take matters in our own hands when God doesn't operate the way we want him to operate. We all do this. We have this tendency to take control of our lives. And that's what we really want to try to do, to take matters into our own hands. And that's what these guys were doing. See, they were going into the town, spend a year trading and making money. They didn't wait on God, consult Him, or commit their way to Him. Instead, they took matters into their own hands. See, we have this way that we think we, we want something in our lives, and we say we want God's will, and then we let God speak into it. But when God doesn't operate in the way that we think He should, or in our timetable, we try to redirect God to a different lane, as if God doesn't know what He's doing. Now, I I did this, I've done this several times in my life, and the most painful time that I ever did this, I actually used it as a means of promoting my own ego rather than God. And here's what I mean. Or actually, I used it under the mask of God. Several years ago, I, I, uh, I went to uh, college in Chicago at Moody Bible Institute. I finished school. I went into ministry. And after a while, I said, oh, I want to do more. I want to be trained more. And I can really sense God leading for that. And God led me to do three things. Leave where I was at, uh, be a full-time student, and a full-time pastor. And a long story short, I ended up in New England pastoring a church that was there. I got some great education, got some great life experiences. And real quick, as I, I got into this school, I uh, was going through orientation. And I was pretty proud. You wanted to show off your knowledge and how smart you were. Were. And I remember being in line, and I'm surrounded with all these other students, and I make conversation with this one student. And uh, we're talking to one another, and he goes, where are you from? I said, well, I'm coming from Chicago. And he's like, great. He goes, well, where'd you go to school? And I went, Moody Bible Institute. And, and you say that in Chicagoland, people are like, oh, wow, Moody, that's great. This guy's from the East Coast. He goes, what's Moody? So I dropped the classic Moody line, the Harvard of Bible Colleges. Yeah, that's up. And, he, and I go, where'd you go to school? He goes, Harvard. The Harvard of Harvard. I went from feeling real bold to really that small, real quick. Because I was surrounded now with people that went to MIT, Yale, Harvard. So I wanted to be a part of that crowd. I wanted to be smart. I wanted that esteem. I wanted that, 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 that type of uh, recognition. And I'm serving in this small little Baptist church in Peabody, Massachusetts, kind of out uh, away from everybody else. And I'm feeling that this church isn't big enough for my ego. It's really what it was. 
And so I, I'd finished some schooling. I needed some more schooling. I wanted a PhD. I wanted recognition. I wanted a bigger platform. So I rationalized. I said, I'm going to go off and do second school. And I'm talking to people. And I said, well, I had a, I had a big problem. Money. Have you ever had a problem where there's not enough money? Yeah, we all have. I mean, I haven't seen anyone here with the last name of Gates carrying around Microsoft anytime soon. But none of us are really wealthy. And so I thought, though, someone said, well, God's supply for you are these student loans. Now, it could be. But in this instance, I was foolish. I took out not just loans. I took out loans to live on for a year. Choice that I'm still paying for now. Because what it was is that I wanted, it, I wanted that education, I wanted that recognition, even though I was rationalizing it was for ministry. God, this is what I want. And God's saying, there's no money. I'm not supplying the money right now. So I went, you know, God, I'm going to use these loans to do what you want me to do. And I remember in the middle of this time when I'm, when I'm wondering, did I make the right decision that uh, I have some money? I mean, we were really, my loans ran out quick, and, and God supplied some miraculous funds. And I remember going back to school, and I was talking to a former cl- a, a classmate, and I said to him, man, God supplied. That's just confirmation I'm supposed to be here. He goes, that could be, or it could be God bailing you out because you made a stupid choice. Oh. He was right. It was God bailing me out. It wasn't me. It wasn't a confirmation. See, I had made a real foolish choice. I had presumed upon God. And I, even though I was using it in my head for ministry, the reality was is I was using the ministry as a cover for my own ego. And that was tough. And so I, I still try to take matters into our own hands. How many of us have done that? We think we, we need to get what we deserve, and we're going to use this card, this credit card, and get this much money, and we're going to do this and do that, because that's what we deserve. And we try to take money or take matters into our own hands, and we're trying to turn that car away from God, and God's saying, I'm leading you into something you don't understand. See, sometimes the limitations that God puts in our life are for our good because it's in the middle of that that we really begin to understand how to suffer for the glory of God. We don't suffer well in our culture. We are consumeristic, and it is everywhere within our culture. That's what James is trying to address this. He's saying, you've got to rethink your plans. Not that I don't want you to make plans, but I don't want you to, first of all, think you're in control. You're not. I am. Secondly, when I'm directing you to some place, I want you to be there. And you're trying to find your way out because you can't see how I'm, I'm trying to, to work in you. It's not just what I want to do, what you're doing. It's who you're becoming. And we've forgotten that. And we have this tendency to take matters into our own hands. See, what James is trying to do is he's challenging us to rethink our plans and also challenging us to recalibrate our perspective. We have to rethink how we look at things. Because, see, for the most of us, we are taught, especially in our culture, and for those that are coming in from a different culture, this might seem foreign to you, but in our culture, especially in what we're seeing in our institutions, it's all about you. It's all about you. It's about what you want, your wants, your desires, your preferences. You can have it your way. Here, you want to go and order coffee? I'll give it for you. I'll put your name on it. You can experience it. It's all about you. Everything's about you. Let me tell you something. It's not about you. It's not about you. And James is trying to challenge that. We have to change our perspective. You know, President Teddy Roosevelt often likes going out and he looked, looking at the stars 
And William Beebe, who was a naturalist, a friend of his, used to tell the story about Teddy. When they would be at his home in New York, they would go after outside after an evening of good conversation. They'd go out on the lawn and search the skies for a certain spot of star-like light near the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. Then Roosevelt would recite. He was a very self-educated man, very smart man. He says, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It's one of 100 million galaxies that consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. Then Roosevelt would turn, grin, and say, now, I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. See, Roosevelt had this tendency to really put himself at the center of his own universe. Matter of fact, his daughter said of him that he wanted to be the baby at every baptism, the bride at every wedding, and the corpse at every funeral. He was so full of himself. He, wanted to be, he was the center of everything. So here, though, he's trying to change that perspective. See, we have to change our perspective to realize that the world doesn't go around us, and we're not the stars of our own movie. Instead, God is the star, and we're bit players. We need to recognize that. Recalibrate our perspective. Now let's look at verse 14 with me. See what else James and what that means. To how do we recalibrate our perspective? He says, yet you do know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what the future holds. Matter of fact, you are time bound. See, that's a very important thing. We have the solution today with all the technology that we have with social media that we can know everything. We can go on Facebook. We can see what people are doing all over. We can go online. We can see what the news is. We can see all the sports. We can see everything we want to. We have all these emails. We have all this information, and it gives us the illusion of omniscience and omnipotence. Like we're all powerful. We can know everything, and we carry that mentality into different places. And James is saying, you are time-bound. You have to understand that, that we are limited No matter how much our world tries to pull us away, we have to understand that. And when we do, things will change in our perspective. See, you know, one of the greatest stresses that I see in our contemporary culture, and this is another thing that we have this illusion of, we can do it all. We have this illusion, and I see so many Christians so overburdened, and we are the most time-poor people I've ever seen in our lives. We We may not be financially poor, but we're always tired because we never feel like we have enough time. I mean, we, we don't, right? We're, we're constantly on this treadmill, going, 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 all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. And then I hear Christians lament. They, care, they are all victims of what I call drive-by guiltings. Drive-by guiltings. Christians are overwhelmed with these drive-by guiltings. I'll never be good enough. I'll never pray enough. I'll never read my Bible enough. We just walk around guilty all the time and defeated. And let me, let me practice a little gracism with you. Okay? A little gracism, bestow a little grace on you. The gospel is not about what you do. It's about trusting in what Christ has already done. What he did on the cross for you, he freed us from that. But see, many of us, we say we believe that, that God did everything for us, but we live and act as if he didn't do anything. And we're living as victims of these, this, <laughs> these drive-by guiltings where we constantly feel like I can be the best parent. I can be the best worker. I'm not, though. i gotta be, I got to be the best at this. i got to be the best at that. I'm supposed to give God my best, right? That's what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, but we have this illusion we can do it all. We can't. You cannot do it all. As a matter of fact, in James' time, there wasn't even an idea in their mind that they could do all this stuff. If they would show up today and see all the stuff that we would do, they would pass out, overwhelmed, of everything that we face. And we have to understand that we are time-bound. We are limited. And it's a delightful thing. And when you can let that go, 
then you find peace. But when you try to do, 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 you're always going to feel defeated and overwhelmed. We have to understand that, recalibrate our perspective. You know, some people, I hear other people say, well, I'm not, I need to be a better evangelist. Well, I need to be a better Christian worker. I need to be better this, I need to be better that, better this. You know, God doesn't call everybody to be an evangelist. He doesn't. He calls us all to evangelize, but he doesn't call us all to be evangelists. And some of us aren't that good at it. Some of us are great at it. I mean, Jeanette is here, Jeanette Williams. She is one amazing evangelist. That girl can share Jesus with anybody. She's amazing at it. I've seen her fruit of her ministry. She's been working with IV for years. Fascinating ministry. I'm not a very good evangelist. But for whatever reason, we think that we all have to be Billy Graham. You know, why would Paul say this? I want to share this with you because I think this will take a load off. This is what God calls you to do. Here we go. He's writing to the Thessalonians and he says this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Why? They love people. That's the point. Love God, love people. They're loving people. And he says, for you yourselves has been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Love people more. And to aspire to be great evangelists? No. To have a lot of Facebook tweets and posts and all that stuff? And No. He says, and aspire to live a quiet life. Live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. And work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. See, I hear, I hear a lot of Christians say, well, I need to be doing more ministry. Let me tell you, you're in ministry. If you are a Christian, you are brought into ministry. You may not be in full-time vocational ministry where you're paid for it, but you minister when you're helping meet the needs of another person. That's what ministry is, is meeting the needs of another person, which means moms that are home with your kids, your ministry is with your kids. If you have that ability to do that, but I'm saying don't look at your family as keeping you from ministry. It is a ministry. Same with dads. Dads, your family is a ministry. Your workplace, your boss, your coworkers, those who are students, you're in ministry. You may not think so. Now it's going you know, to freak some of you out. You're in ministry. We're all in ministry. He calls us to be salt and light wherever we go. We have to realize that, that ministry isn't, I can do this, do this, and do this. Be who you are, where you are. Bloom where you're planted. Be the people God wants you to be where you're at. See, it's not, God is not so concerned about what he's doing through you. He's going to work through you, but he's also changing and making in you. That's what he's really concerned about, who the person you are and who you're becoming. And that will be, hopefully, a natural outflow to those around us. This is driving me crazy. Good sign. Okay? Now, not only do we have to realize that we're time-bound, James really drops a, a bomb on us on verse 14. And you've got to wonder, James, man, are you suffering from depression? This is a pretty half-glass, you know, half-full glass kind of perspective here, a little dark night of the soul. And he says this, and this doesn't really encourage us. He says in verse 14, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Thanks for the encouragement, James. But you see what he's doing is he's changing our perspective because he's reminding us that we are transitory. Transitory, meaning that we're not going to be here long. Transitory, that's letter B in your notes, that we are transitory. So we have to recalibrate our perspective. We are time-bound, but we're transitory. And we need to re- when we understand that, it helps us a little bit because we realize that we're not God, nor is God calling us to be God. He's got the job covered pretty well without our help. 
it's a great way to help change our perspective. Moses understood this. In, in uh, Psalm, chapter, Psalm 90, he says this, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom, to understand that we're not in charge, that really it's ultimately about him and about the people around us that are made in his image, about loving them. We shared a while back, there was a TED Talk that was done recently, if you're familiar with those. And uh, this TED Talk was talking, it was actually the uh, culmination of the longest study that's ever been done. Um, It was done by Harvard University or the same control group over a 75-year period on what is the secret to happiness in life. It's a great, uh, great talk if you hear about it. And and they they surveyed those who were very poor and very wealthy. And at at the end of 75 years... Do you know what the secret of happiness was? It wasn't how much money they made, how much power they had, how much influence they had. The secret of happiness was their relationships that they had, the people around them that are closest to us. God has created us to be relational beings. And that's why he says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, those around us. Because it's about these relationships. And we have to understand that. That helps change our perspective when we realize that we don't have to be everything for everyone. But if I'm going to love God and I love people, that I can do. God keeps it simple. But he does remind us that we are transitory. And so when we understand that we are transitory, that helps again change our perspective. As 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18 says, So we don't lose heart. Don't give up. This is Paul writing, don't lose hope. Though our outer self is wasting away, though we're dealing with limitations, that we're, and as the older that you get, the more limitations you realize. You're dealing with certain body issues, and you're dealing with sicknesses and diseases, and your body doesn't move as fast as it does, and your mind begins to slip, and you realize that this outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. No reason, then, that it doesn't surprise me that the older you get, the more your faith becomes deeper, because you understand as your body begins to fail, that your strength is not in who you are. One day it's going to go away. For this light momentary affliction, that's what he's saying, this light thing that we experience now in comparison to eternity, eternity, and I love this part, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight of glory, eternal time of thinking and understanding and comprehending and marveling at God beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Or as John reminds us in 1 John, the world and its desires are passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Because that's what comes down. That's what endures. And our world is changing left and right. And it's amazing what's once popular that we think everybody knows about and everybody needs to know about is forgotten in a generation. I had this really brought out to me the other day when I was speaking with David. David and I are different generations. I'm Generation X. He's a millennial. Right? And I was talking about Back to the Future. And he's like, I've never seen that. I almost passed out. I was like, how can you have never seen that? That movie was huge. And he's like, yeah, I'll see it in like a film classic thing one day. You just realize, I'm like, wait a minute, what was really popular in my day, in my era, is passing away. And for those that are younger, what you think is huge now is going to be forgotten. That's just how time works. And it's kind of a bleak outlook. 
But it's not when it drives us back to God. And it focuses on what is unseen because what is unseen is eternal, is eternal. Now, rather than continue to run around so busy making our plans on the treadmill of life, let's pause to rest in God's providence for a moment. Now, providence is not a term that we use very often, especially in our contemporary language. Uh, But providence was actually a term that if you go back and ever read any of our founding fathers, they used this term quite a bit. And providence is simply... um, the knowledge of God providing protective or spiritual care to us. God working things together for the good of those who love Him. As Romans 8.28 says. Now how do we rest in God's providence, His spiritual care, knowing that he has this, He's watching over us? How do we rest in this knowledge of God's purpose working itself out in our lives? There's two ways. The first is found in verse 15. He says this. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's an acknowledgement to God. Not just a verbal little acknowledgement, as if it's some type of formula or incantation or good luck charm. It's, it's a real heart acknowledgement that God is in charge of our lives. What does that mean? It means that we're to honor God with our plans. The Scripture speaks a great deal about this. For example, we read in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit your work to the Lord. Understand Him. Honor God with your plans. Now, let me say a word about plans. Planning has a tendency to, look, to be looked at from a Christian perspective on a spectrum. This is, I consult God for every single thing I do, including the shirt that I'm wearing right now. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah, this is what he answered. Um, or the other side where we never, ever consult God at all. And so, you, you can't live over here, though. Seriously, you, everything that you, God, do I, should I go to the bathroom right now or should I wait? God, should I put sugar in this coffee? God, should I do this? It's as if we have, we have this idea that God has a blueprint for your life. Let me say this right now. God does not have a blueprint for your life. He does not have a blueprint for your life. If you've been taught that, you've heard poor theology. God does not have a blueprint for your life. Here's why. A blueprint must be followed exactly, and if there's ever any deviation or change, the whole blueprint comes to collapse. If you ask any architect or someone who's running a construction project, I mean, they stay up late wondering, is someone going to forget what's on the blueprints, especially a builder? If they miss anything on the blueprints, it messes everything else up. And if you think your life is a blueprint, then any choice that you made that was not according to what God would want, then it causes the whole plan to fail. God does not have a blueprint for your life. God does have a game plan, though. And here's what I mean by that. In, in a game plan is like in football. For those that aren't familiar with American football, but American football, you have the quarterback, and he has a play that he has to, wants to run. And he sees, though, that the defense might be doing something different, so he calls an audible, meaning there's a change in it. Then he goes back, does the play, but then he sees that certain things aren't developing right, so he goes to plan B. See, a blueprint, there is no plan B. There's only plan A. But in football, there's plan A, plan B, plan C, and you're seeing what happens. Now, people might say, well, it means I can do whatever I want. No. Within the game, there are rules, and there's, there's places you can go outside of that. You have to stay on the field. You have to conduct it in a certain way. But within that, there is a relative movement of going around. So it is with God's plan for your life. So when I hear people say to me, like, is this God's will for my life? Usually it's about a job or a spouse. Right? That's what I hear it about. Is this God's will for my life? Let me tell you, nowhere in the Bible does God say who your spouse is going to be. Now, I thought that would happen. 
right? I thought when I was, when I was dating my wife, we, were, we, come to, we came to a point when we were dating that it was time to either what I call fish or cut bait. Either we were going to get married or it was going to go off. It was going to nothing. And so I went away for this two-day spiritual retreat to, to pray and seek God's face. And as I'm praying, I'm waiting for this moment where light, I'm picturing her in my head and light would just come on her going, Oh, she's the one for you. You know that never happened. It never did. And I went away, and, and of course I get on the phone, she's like, what did God say? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about it. You know why? Because God says, marry whoever you want to as long as they're in the Lord. There you go. So he gives you a lot of freedom in there to do and, and say these things. Now, as I shared this story in the first service, do we have that photo? Okay. John Rosas, for those that know John, John's one of the elders here at the campus. He goes, well, he goes, I was on a mission trip and, uh, with a group of people in Mexico. There was several years ago. We had a group trip in Mexico. And this is uh, Vicky, who is uh, going to the church. And she was on this trip, and John was really attracted to her. And he's praying to the Lord, show me, when he goes, the light hitter at that moment in time. He goes, so God showed me. So I went up to her, and I asked her. I said, you know, and I got to know her, and I finally asked her, would you marry me? She said, No. <laughs> And it wasn't until later that he worked on her for a while. So sometimes God does do that. Uh, but in many of our cases, that's not it. And, and it's whether it's for that job. You're like, where is that confirmation? And I've seen some Christians make some pretty poor choices because they were waiting for this, ah, oh, moment. And it doesn't happen, or very rarely. Now, sometimes God does have a blueprint in how things want to go, okay? But that's more the exception than the rule. I mean, Jonah is a great picture. God had a different thing in mind with Jonah. But most of the time, we have to understand it's more God has a game plan for your life. And you have to honor God with your plans. And if you're debating, do I choose this job or that job, it's God show me. God's saying, hey, it's your choice. Go ahead. Again, within the, the parameters, if it's there to glorify me and your heart's right, choose which one you want. Have that freedom. Instead of, instead of going around as carrying this, this victim mentality because of the drive-by guiltings you have received. So honor God with your plans. God's given you freedom. Now, I want to focus on the last verse in today's passage. This verse, when I first read it, it seemed like a very abrupt stop. It seemed like a very odd transition. The more I thought about it, the more I started seeing the connection of how God the Spirit was putting it together. But in verse 17, we read this. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, it seems like a strange thing to go from planning to this. Until I really started thinking on it. And, and matter of fact, many theologians call this verse the, the, the root of what's called the sin of omission. Now, sin has really two types. Uh, sin is commission, the things that we know that we shouldn't do and we do. And the sin of omission are the good things that we know we're supposed to do and we don't. That's the sin of omission. That's kind of what this is talking about. But what James is saying here is really these people were making plans and they were only doing it for their own selfish gain. And they forgot that God's saying, God, I have something for you to do and you're not doing it. Instead, you're going off your own way and I want you to be doing this. And, and what is that? The good that you're supposed to do? Really? It's about helping other people. See, we're honor God and help other people. See, they were going off pursuing their own thing, but they were neglecting to help the people that God had already placed around them. And that means, that's what we're supposed to do. We're to honor God with our plans, and then we're to help others. That's what God wants, to sacrifice ourselves for the good of another person. Isn't that what marriage is? 
See, the reality is, though, is even in our relationships, we've, cons- we've carried this consumer mentality into everything. In our relationships and how we understand church, how we go about life. And we have to understand that nothing's going to be perfect. There's a process. And right now we're in this process. is to delight and find peace in the process. Something that I have to really work on. But we have to learn to honor God with our plans and help other people as we go about it because that's what James wants us to do. It's not carpe diem. It's dio valente. It's as the Lord wills. And what does God will? What is he revealed in his word? Most of the will of God is revealed within the word of God because God is not so much concerned about the job you take or any of those things. He's cared about the person you are. He doesn't care about which work he wants you to do. He cares about how you do the work that he has for you. We have to remember that. That's what James is talking about in this passage. And we have to rest in his providence, knowing that he is going to take care of us. It's not about us. But we are to honor him to know that he is in charge and to help other people as we go on our way. Deal valente, as the Lord wills. It's not about you. It's about him. So let's offer up ourselves to him by rethinking our plans, recalibrating our perspective, and resting in God's providence as we seek his will and seek to live within the game plans he has for us, for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, I come before you now knowing that you are awesome and that you are God. And Lord, how quickly we mess this up. We mess up our lives we choose our own way. We go off our own selfish direction. We don't seek your, your plans. We don't seek to honor you with our plans. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us. And we pray, Lord, that we truly might submit and surrender to what it is that you have for us. Though it might seem hard, we understand that that's what is best. So Lord, that we're in a culture that says that we should try to shake free of the limitations around us. That we truly should seize the day. Lord, not that we don't, make, we don't have ambition and we don't have godly dreams, but we seek to surrender and acknowledge that you are in charge of our lives and that you are the one who ultimately directs us. You are the one who gives us the abilities that we have. So Lord, help us to abandon our arrogance and surrender to your providence. And Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us how you've supremely showed your love for us in Christ and his death on the cross that freed us from trying to work our way to God. But may we receive that rest in that salvation that has been given and purchased for us. May we delight in you. May you direct us. And may your name receive glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.